0: The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life.
1: And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour, So may my life be to all those who
0: share this wilderness road. In the early days of the pandemic, when the shutdowns first started, we moved our Bible studies online. We were able to see each other face to face, share together a bit. We even did an extended study of First Peter. It was good to feel something normal. But it was hard to get used to that format. And as things progressed and we all realized it wasn't going to be a temporary hiatus, we knew it was time to make some changes for the long haul. So St. Aidan's offered two small group book studies. Folks were able to divide up, focus on the book that interested them the most. This series is a recording of our study of the King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. In this book, Scott challenges us to examine whether our church culture is a salvation culture or a gospel culture. How do we understand who Jesus is and what God's calling his church into? And whether our gospel looks like the good news the apostles proclaimed or the evangelicalism of the early 20th century? And along the way, Scott McKnight invites us to examine our own hearts as well, to see what stories we tell in our own lives. So please allow me to invite you to join us as we spend the next several weeks reading and discussing the King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. The nice thing about chapter 9 is that he starts off by telling you why chapter 9 is important, which is that it's the fourth leg of the stool. Uh, so he explains to us what the the stool is is made up of. In, in you know, the stool being his his argument about what is the the proper biblical definition for the gospel. Uh, so he started off by explaining what the gospel looks like essentially in Paul's writings. so in the in in the letters that Paul wrote, so we're talking the the second, third, even, you know, d- depending on how we how we how we do dating and authorship on on the the, the Pauline epistles, Uh, You know, maybe maybe a little bit later than that. Um, But definitely the second and third generation of Christianity, what did the gospel look like? And and he helped to sort of break up some of the assumptions that we carry because of the kind of culture that we've we've grown up in, uh, especially as American Christians. Uh, and so then he moved on to what is, what is the gospel, so that's what the gospel looks like in Paul, but what does the gospel look like in the, the gospels themselves? When the gospel writers are talking about what is the good news of Jesus Christ, what does that look like? And so he sort of took some time to explain to us, this is, this is what the, the gospel looks like in the context of the gospel books themselves. This is how the, the, the gospel writers conceived of what the good news was. What was this the, this this evangel that was going out? What was the good news, and how was it being proclaimed? And he said, well, then what did it look like when Jesus proclaimed the gospel? So using the words of Jesus and the way that Jesus describes his own work and his own mission, he then explains to us, uh, you know, bit by bit what the gospel itself looks like. And so now we're establishing this fourth stool which is we've heard from the gospel writers and from Jesus. We've also heard from the later Christians, but how did the very first Christians, that first generation of believers, what did it look like when they proclaimed the gospel? What was the way that they, that, that they proclaimed it? He refers to that as gospeling. So how did they gospel and what was the gospel that they gospeled? What was the good news that they were proclaiming? Uh, and what, what exactly does that look like? <clears throat> so, those are the, the four legs of the stool. Now, on page 130 in this section called The Two Elephants in the Room, he explains uh, that, there, that, that he has two observations about this time frame. Okay, The first observation is that there are seven or eight gospel sermons or summaries of gospel sermons that are in the book of Acts, and he lists them out. Uh, each one of these the, these sermons, and and one of the things that I, I appreciate here is they said Acts is unique because it records and 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 passes on to us the sermons themselves. So it's not Paul who's talking in in broad terms about Christianity to other Christians. It's not happening at sort of an upper tier theological level. This is what did it look like when the Christians spoke to people who weren't Christians and told them about the Christian story. So these uh, these sermons that are preserved in Acts are primarily sermons from Peter and from Paul. And he says there is a sermon from Stephen that's worth considering, um, but he leaves it out of the discussion only because the purpose of that sermon was different than the other sermons. The purpose of that sermon was to pronounce God's judgment over uh, people that had had uh, essentially continued to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so there is a, a, a more, what does he say? He says that it is uh, it's better classified as apologetics and prophetic warning. Uh, so we're not going to lose anything by skipping past that and just focusing on the sermons that are given by Peter and the sermons that are given by Paul. So then he says that there are some summaries, uh, these seven summaries of the sermons are gospeling sermons, and he says what is also interesting is that Acts is full of references to these teachings, and each of these references describes what proclaiming the gospel looked like. They talk about the message, proclaiming the good news, the message, the good news, message, good news, preaching, hearing the word of God, words of exhortation, message of salvation, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel on and on and on are these references to the proclamation of the good news which is of course exactly what good news is all about we talked about that in the sermon on sunday the whole purpose of the good news is not that it's a story but that it's a proclamation that goes out the king is proclaiming his reign and so the early church sees themselves as the proclaimers they see themselves as the messengers the heralds of the 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 proclamation of the good news of jesus christ So at the end of that, I want us to pause here for just a second because he has this really dense sentence that that I want us to just walk through uh, a, a bit and kind of talk about. This is the last paragraph before the section entitled Israel's Story Framed the Gospel of the Apostles. So in that last paragraph, he says these two observations, the first observation being that there are seven or eight sermons and the second observation uh, is that these, these sermons are gospeling sermons. The sermons themselves are about proclamation uh, and proclaiming the gospel. So this is what he says. These two observations lead me to say that these two elephants in the room, that if we ignore these passages, we will make two colossal mistakes. We will both fail to see what the gospel was, and we will fail to see how the apostles gospeled. So if we overlook these two points that he's pointing out, not only that there are sermons and that these sermons summarize the gospel, but that these summaries of the gospel are gospeling themselves. I felt like that was difficult to wrap my head around. Was anybody else sort of stuck on that point? It was like, no, Lee, that made perfect sense. I don't know what you're talking about.
2: Um, I think the the issue was him trying to use the word gospel in in the more authentic ways where whereas we are still mired in just our cultural baggage you know right. what, whether that baggage is correct or incorrect it's there <laughs> um and so i think he's trying to use it in in those same ways but by doing that he it can be a little clunky until you get used to it which is why i think that last sentence was where that first sentence was so helpful because the what is the first bit the the sermons the the gospel is mm-hmm. the what the gospeling is the how mm-hmm. so i think that was very useful clarification right so i don't think it was i to me that that sentence wasn't confusing I, it de me on <laughs> the stuff prior to it
0: nice so he's going to move on to, to unpack what those two statements mean for the rest of the chapter. He's going to help us to understand how they, how they understood the gospel and how they proclaimed that gospel, uh, that the two of those things are tied together in the book of Acts specifically. <clears throat> and what he says in that first full paragraph on the next page on, under Israel's story, I thought was absolutely fantastic. So he says... Um, This is about uh, the second, third sentence in. He says, Peter and Paul framed their gospeling through the grid of Israel's story coming to its destination in the story of Jesus. Neither did they frame their gospel from the perspective of an atonement theory, whether ransom or penal substitution, salvation and, and atonement flow out of that. But neither atonement nor salvation was how the apostles framed the gospel. They didn't frame the gospel in terms of either salvation or atonement theory, but rather they framed the gospel in terms of Israel's story coming to its destination in the story of Jesus. That the the telos, the purpose of the story that God has been telling through the people of Israel all along was to bring us to Jesus was to bring us to the story of Jesus and then he's going to say this later on in the chapter but then to invite us to enter into that story ourselves that that invitation to enter into the story of Jesus is in fact what it looks like for us to gospel the gospel so he continues on a little bit here um this is on page on on page 134 he's he, he spends some time talking about Peter and talking about Paul and looking at in in their their sermons and acts, the ways that they use the Old Testament. And I I, I specifically appreciated this bit at at the transition between those two pages, that we have to remind ourselves constantly that the apostles didn't have Bible search engines and smartphones, that what they were preaching and proclaiming on the spot, off the cuff, was also off the top of their heads, and so sometimes they, and and so what they'll do is they'll grab a passage from from the Psalms, and they'll grab a passage from Isaiah, and sometimes they'll grab a passage from Genesis, and all of that gets woven together into this story, where they're saying, do you see all of this together, and the way that God has been at work, the way that God has been accomplishing uh, God's ends, all along, so he talks about that in in Peter, and then he talks about it in Paul. But this is what I appreciate. This so I'm at the bottom of one thirty-four. He says that that the the citations of Scripture aren't apologetic props in a sermon that could get by without the props. So often when when we hear people, you know, giving a a, a presentation or a proclamation, or especially when it's a an invitation, sort of a, a, a gospel, they they grab at these these concepts and images and memes and tropes and threads from scripture and they just use them to sort of hammer their their idea home. We 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 call that, you know, crop picking, taking scripture out of context. But he's saying here that they're not grabbing these scriptures out of context. Their gospel was the story of Jesus resolving the story of Israel. The story of Israel is brought to its fulfillment, its completion in the story of Jesus. The texts that the apostles quoted from in the Old Testament weren't props. They were the light posts to help Israel find its way from Abraham to Jesus. And then at the the last paragraph there, what the prophets were yearning for in images that they themselves ached to comprehend, and what they were glimpsing in all but fully comprehensible ways suddenly appeared one day in the land of Israel, and his name was Yeshua ben Yosef and Miriam. Once they encountered him, their Bible became a new book precisely because they read it as gospel. That phrase right there really caught my attention. This idea that the Bible became the gospel, that until Jesus, it wasn't good news, or at least it wasn't good news in its entirety. It wasn't good news that had an end to the the story. It was just sort of a hopeful idea, like like a maybe someday sort of storytelling. But in fact, Jesus enters into the midst of that story and brings the story to its completion, and the Bible itself becomes a new kind of book, because it is transformed into the gospel, into the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, that there is a new king, that there's a new emperor, and that he exists in the person of Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, who has lived and who has died and who has been raised again and now sits enthroned. So let's talk for a second about some of those images, because obviously, I think one of the things that we want to be careful of is um, a sort of supersessionism. We we don't want to uh, to um, the nice we, we don't. It, it's very easy historically for Christians to take some of these ideas and then to 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 use them as theological or, or rhetorical tools in order to advance their anti-Semitism. Uh, so we want to be be careful here to not say that the story of Israel wa- only only became a meaningful story when it became a Christian story. Um, I, think, I I think that my my hesitation here is pushing too hard on this particular point because I'm worried that, it comes across in that way. Did you guys have any, in, any similar thoughts as you were reading that? I didn't necessarily have an
1: issue with the way that it was put, but I, I do see that now that you pointed out, but, but I think that the, the point he's trying to make is actually the opposite point, which is that the Christian story has no basis. It has no meaning. It ha- it literally doesn't exist without the story of the old testament and without the story of the jews it's and so kind of for anybody way. to try to argue that that story doesn't have meaning until our story comes along it's like but your story has literally zero meaning mm-hmm. like your your story is less than meaningless without <laughs> that's
0: without the original story yeah i think that's a really good point
2: yeah um and to go along with what jeremiah is saying i think what he's trying to stress whether or not he gets it across all that well is that the jewish story was you know it was the important foundation story like jeremiah was saying it was just an incomplete story it wasn't yet resolved Mm -hmm. until jesus came it's like he he's not uh, it's definitely really easy to take that next step and go, aha, it's go from an unresolved story to an unimportant story. Mm-hmm. And then once it's unimportant, well, then the people aren't necessarily important either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as long as you don't do that and go, no, it was just an unresolved story and stick there. It's like, cause that's the, the way he's framing it. At least that's the correct answer. It's like in math. Everything you do to get to the correct answer was the correct thing to do. Anything beyond that, by definition, makes you wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I don't have uh, extensive experience in in discussing like high level theology with, with with Jewish people. The handful of Jewish people that I have uh, that I have known and talked with, I don't think that they would be offended by somebody describing. The Bible, the 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 Old Testament, and the Tanakh, whatever we want to whatever we want to call it, uh, I don't think that they would necessarily be uncomfortable with us describing it as a story that doesn't have a resolution. That there's that that in in the Jewish mind or in Jewish theology, oftentimes there's a level of comfort with their the with with the story itself not being resolved. That it's it's an open-ended story that God is continuing to tell. Uh, you know, by 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 and through his his people, and so I, don't, I I just I think I think my hesitation is I want to make sure that we as Christians aren't saying that it's incomplete by meaning that it is it is of less value because exactly what Jeremiah said is true. It's it it is what gives our story value because our, our story is is the story of, of God who has been constantly at work bringing his people to himself. And if that's not the story that is resolved in the person of Jesus Christ, then all that we have is just uh you know a, another a, a, another story about an avatar who came and did some stuff and was God then and is still God now. Um but but it's that groundedness that that forces us back into uh back into contemplating the the incarnation itself that this is not just um, that this is not just uh, a, an avatar, this isn't just a, a, a seeming or a semblance of God, but that God Himself, in fact, steps into the story that He's been telling all along in order to bring it to a completion and the, to begin a new, a, a, a new kind of a story that He's telling about the a, about the world now.
2: Because yeah, um, that goes along with, well, you know jesus is the son the word made flesh mm-hmm. we refer to scriptures as the word written mm-hmm. we say in the creeds that the holy spirit spoke through the prophets
0: mm-hmm.
2: by lessening the new testament we attempt or by lessening the old testament excuse me by lessening the jewish story we attempt to lessen god right because that was god revealing himself to us that was the word revealing himself to us via the word written. So we can't diminish one without at the same time diminishing the very person we claim to worship.
0: Any other thoughts before we we move on a little ways through the chapter? So the next section is that the apostles declare the whole story of Jesus as gospel. And I think that this is useful because at the bottom of 135, he says, the reason that we have to say this is because too often we have reduced the life of Jesus to Good Friday and therefore reduced the gospel to the crucifixion. And then satarians have reduced Jesus to transactions of a Savior. That that transactional idea of of the gospel happens because we have, we have diminished the entirety of the gospels we've we've suggested that the gospel the part of the gospel that, all, that that matters is the 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 three or four chapters at the end of each book where they deal with the death and resurrection that everything that came before that however many chapters that is 10 10 or 11 or 12 chapters or or, or 20 chapters uh you know depending on which gospel we're in that that the rest of that doesn't really matter um but what he points out is that in these in these early sermons, that's not what we see. We, we don't see them, uh, you know, only telling the story. In fact, and he does, I don't think he points it out here. I think he points it out later that there's no discussion of the crucifixion at all when Paul meets with the, the Greeks at the Areopagus. When he gives his sermon there, he doesn't even mention Jesus dying, uh, d- dying in, in a in, in a, you know, a public display like that. Uh, he doesn't even reference that at all. He talks about the resurrection, but he doesn't talk about the, the crucifix. It's not even part of the gospel when Paul proclaims it in that particular setting. Um, but he he asks us to to read this um, this passage slowly and to to listen very carefully to the way that Peter describes the whole life of Jesus. All right. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to read this to us and then invite us to do a little bit of reflection. Okay. So this is what Peter says. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 10. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news, the gospel of peace, through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good, and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did in the country of the Jews in in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day, and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he was the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So what is, as as you hear that passage, what is unique or different from the way that you have heard the gospel proclaimed in the past? or what's similar maybe there maybe that's similar to the way that you have experienced uh people gospeling the gospel
2: well i can definitely tell you a way that it's different it doesn't mention salvation at all
0: <laughs>
2: not, not in the slightest it doesn't even pretend to it goes straight for jesus is the lord it's like again with that first sentence the lord of all and then at the end whom god appointed as judge of living and dead like that's literally two of the names that god has given himself throughout the earlier story of the jewish people so it's like right there they are proclaiming jesus who is the christ as god Mm -hmm. in person it's it, it was just implied Trinitarian statement of Christ being king.
3: Yeah. At, at what point did the Jews not believe in Jesus? Why, why, why do you think they didn't? Because of the religious system or religious leaders or what?
0: You mean it with in, in the context of Jesus's life, or yeah, later well, on?
3: Later on, even today, some Jews mm-hmm. there, There's so much evidence, you know. It's hard to realize why not? Why did they not believe? I I mean I I
1: doubt there's any one answer to that, but I mean you do definitely have religious systems that are in place. Like, you know, just imagine, just think about some of the things that you could ask people to do that would make them real biblical christians that they would reject today i mean you could you could think of a lot of options there are people who are so entrenched in you know one thing um and you know if their if their idea is one way you know like for us if you're dead sold on that, tim lahay knows exactly how the world's going to end yep the world ends a different way are you you're are you going to believe it or if you're dead set against tim lahay being correct and the world ends the way tim lahay says it's going to are you know how much pushback are you going to put against that and so i think there's definitely some of that i think that even in the in this um particular passage Um, where Peter's preaching, that he points out another reason. He says God raised him from the dead and caused him to be seen. He was seen by all the people, though. So it's not like when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he then wandered around for three more years, going to all the same towns and cities and, and places like that. There were still people who, you know, had seen Jesus alive, watched him die, and then never saw him alive again. Yeah. Um, and so, like any story, there are reasons. Um, some legitimate and some less legitimate, some based in truth and facts and some based not so much, that, you know, you don't necessarily believe what other people say. Like, why? why do you take Peter for his word instead of um, taking Pilate for his word or Herod for his word or the chief scribes and Pharisees for their word. Um, and if we're dead set on something, we have what they call confirmation bias. And so we believe the stories that fit what we already believe rather than listening to stories that are different from the ones that we already have come
3: to us. And I think you said something just now. Just like people today, why not, not everybody read the read the word and say, "Wow, that's the truth. I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior," but they don't. And even yeah. if they do, we have Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians, and, and we all got our different angles on it. Then.
2: Right. And I think uh, it showed up with Christ Himself after His resurrection um, on the passage in the road to Emmaus with his yeah. uh, two of his disciples where you know these were people that had followed him around for yeah. you know a while let's just put it that way at this point
3: <laughs> well, they uh, who were
2: close sun. to him they they may not have been amongst <laughs> yeah. the innermost of the innermost circles but they were still close yeah. to him yeah and it took jesus himself to as the incarnate god to come and open their eyes the power of the spirit—that's what it takes. Sometimes is for God to work in us. Uh, that's an unfortunate truth. That just because people hear all the you know all the right things doesn't mean it's going to click with them. Yeah, you know, and that's yeah. and that's any group of people, not just the Jews or yeah. pagans or what have you. I mean, why did so many Jews during the time of Moses? choose to not follow with all the literal miracles happening in front of their faces day in and day out and they still go no let's build a statue and worship it
3: yep made him a golden calf
0: <laughs> so any other thoughts on the way that uh the the way that peter retells the story
2: of of the life of christ uh, i do have a bit um and it kind of ties in with what we were just talking about it also ties in with a random apologetics video that i came across in a youtube hole the other day um and that is the fact that peter provides evidence you know it's like here's a reason to believe and enact your belief in faith it's not what we hear from a lot of Let's just say keyboard atheists in comment sections, or that you might come across on college campuses uh, with the well, faith just is blind faith. It means just believing without any evidence. It's like, no, this is the biblical version of faith. Here's reasons. Mm -hmm. We are the eyewitnesses, we spent time with them. Uh, We spent time with them before he died, we were there when he died. We didn't want to be there when he died. We ran and hid. He came to us anyways. We're out here now. And then, of course, the later evidence of them dying horrible, horrible, horrible deaths while sticking to their story. Liars do not make good martyrs. And so it's the fact that there's this evidentiary based aspect of accepting in faith. It's not just... Being told, hey, this is a thing that happened you... and build everything off of just accepting that one statement.
0: Mm-hmm. Anybody else? So the next section of the book talks about the, the fact that the gospel, the, the way that the apostles talked about Jesus uh, was to was to sum up the gospel in the words that they chose to to use about who jesus was so in the the bottom of page 138 he says peter's jesus of nazareth the one who lived and died who was raised and ascended and enthroned is both messiah of israel and lord of the whole world he goes on on the next page peter reads a bible that leads him to see god at work guiding the story of israel into the story of Jesus. And the Jesus of that story is Israel's true king and the Lord over all. So he uses terms like uh, like a servant, a holy righteous one, a prophet, the author of life, Messiah, Lord. Those are the kinds of terminology that Peter uses to, to, uh, to discuss that. And he says that obviously people, you know, will disagree over you know this aspect or that aspect but what he wants us to to do as we're reading especially as we're reading acts here is to listen to the entirety of what peter is saying rather than fixate on one term and what are all of the ways that that jesus is the the servant or all of the ways that jesus is the messiah to take all of the terminology that peter uses and and to see all of that together as one Immense picture that each of those are different colors that Peter is using in order to construct for us an image of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing right now. So, at the very bottom of that page, he says the apostolic gospel was framed in such a way that the story was centered on and revolved around Jesus. The gospel was and is to declare the royal truth about King Jesus. Jesus was and is the gospel. So there's the question. There's the 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 linchpin for all of the the you know the discussion that we've been having this whole time. It only took us 140 pages to get there. What is the gospel? Jesus is the gospel. It's the royal truth about King Jesus. Jesus was, Jesus is the gospel, the good news, the proclamation. Jesus is king. In fact, that's why the book is called the King Jesus gospel. That's what the gospel is. It's that Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. So what does that look like in Paul? Well, he points out in in the next section that, and we mentioned this briefly earlier, that what Paul does is, Paul is a very, very good and well-educated communicator. He is uh, a, a, a rhetorist and he's he is excellent at contextualizing the story of jesus especially in contexts where people may not be familiar with the 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 broader themes of the old testament now that said i i was um have you guys ever done one of the great courses programs anybody ever done those so they, they've got these these are on i i mean i know you can do a subscription to them i just find one that i think is interesting and i get it on audible you know they're like i don't know 15 or 20 bucks but it gives you uh all of the lectures for a course on a particular topic and they've got all kinds of different topics so i just finished one on what it looked like to be an everyday ordinary person in the ancient world and so he started with you know all the way from from neolithic life what we know about that all the way through the early middle ages um and what what did it look like to be just an ordinary person li- living your life and uh and and one of the things they talked about when he was talking about the 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 jewish world is that a lot of times we imagine that if you were a jew and you had moved to say corinth uh, that that you probably had a handful of people who knew you, and that was kind of it. You had your own sort of enclave, your, your own community of people uh, who were also probably Jewish, and that anywhere that you went, you sort of had that, like, I, I, you know, you felt like you were a foreigner. Um, and he said that what we actually find out by, especially more recently in archaeology, is that Around the world, especially across the the, the Hellenic world, so so the, the 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 philosophers were impacted by the ways that the Jewish people approached truth, and so if you went to places where the where, where Greek systems of philosophy and discussion, it would be perfectly normal for you to listen to an orator who would quote from two or three of the. Uh, you know of, of the the stoic philosophers and then would include a quotation from the psalms and generally speaking people would know that it was well enough the the bible itself in the the old testament was well known enough that even that, that there were like important quotations that you can still find sort of scattered around in the ancient world i think sometimes for me at least until i heard that i i had this image in my mind, I guess, of, you know, like when Paul went to these places, nobody had ever heard of this, so he couldn't quote from this, or he couldn't talk about this, and he had to change all of this stuff. Well, yes, he did need to change things, because they they didn't understand. He couldn't speak there the way that he could speak when he was in the synagogue, right? The way that he speaks in the synagogue is he can he can take out the Torah, whatever section of, of the Bible he can begin, he can read from that section, and then he can begin proclaiming Jesus as the fulfillment of, of the story that God is telling about God's people it's not going to obviously that's not going to work when he goes to the you know the top of the agora when he goes up to the areopagus that's that's not going to that's not going to happen but there is still some commonality people especially in those metropolitan areas those metropolitan centers people in those areas were fairly well cultured enough that just like you and i might recognize a quotation or two that came out of the bhagavad-gita or the or, or the the talmud uh, they would also recognize, they said, oh, well, I know that that quotation. That's from uh, you know, the one one of the one of the prophets, from Isaiah, or that's a that's a quotation from one of their one of their their hymns, one of their their poems. that's a that's a quote from the psalms, that that kind of thing. It would it wouldn't be it it wouldn't be quite so foreign, I think, as I had interpreted it to be. And so I thought it was interesting in this passage that that he talked about what paul was really good at doing was going into those places and knowing how he could tell these stories in a way that would be winsome and convincing without changing the content of the story does that make sense to to make that distinction that that paul i here here's what here, here's what i think like it, you know once upon a time in my life if somebody had pointed out that Paul doesn't reference the crucifixion during his presentation of the Areopagus, then I probably, uh, you know, me, me, Lee, back in my, back, back in my early 20s, uh, you know, would, would, have, would have pushed back and said, well, let's, actually, what he did was, and, you know, I would, I would have just, well, actually, them all around the room. <clears throat> but I was really, I, what I really appreciated here was that he said, no, because that's not the gospel, that's a part of the gospel that we the that, that that aspect of it is just a part of the larger story that God is telling uh, about his people and so what Paul does is focus on another area that's accessible in that particular context among that particular people in that particular culture and i thought that that was a, a fantastic way he he refers to this as his ability to adapt to context um so what as you guys were reading that did you guys have any um I don't know any did it come across as as foreign to you did did, did this idea of you know like, uh, like like I said there there was there, there was a time where in in my life I would have talked about you know people who who adjusted the gospel to fit their context as people who were just selling out their faith right they were just like watering down the the gospel so that they could so that they could tickle people's ears or you know, whatever, whatever phrase we would use to sort of denigrate the idea of, of contextualizing uh, our, our, our presentation of the gospel. Um, but that seems to be what Paul does. He does that in, in lots of different contexts. In fact, it seems like he does that in Athens, that the presentation that he gives in Athens at the, you know, the, the philosophical summit at the Areopagus, is different than the presentation that he gives later on when he's talking to the people, and is probably different from the presentation that he gives earlier when he's just standing on a street corner, not in the, uh, in, you know, in in the 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 local uh, Jewish ghetto. So, what kind of reflections did you have? Did did you have that same kind of uh, you know cognitive dissonance as you as you heard about this idea of, of contextualizing the gospel?
2: Not right now. Not while reading it. I. I had gone through that bit years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Like I, I had that moment. It just wasn't from this book. Right. <laughs> it was <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was. Uh, how should I put it? Um, realizing the can, the actual contextual implications of passages in the Old Testament and in some of Paul that seemed to promote male superiority. hmm Realizing that they weren't, they've just been abused to perpetuate it. Right. So it was like, it was during stuff like that where I went, oh, context. hmm So.
0: The, the context matters.
2: Yeah, uh, but it, it's, it uh, is important to realize that what he changed was context, not core story. Mm -hmm. because that that is something that people do to try to whether it's with good intentions or because they want to profit off of uh, preaching a false gospel they will change the message to suit their audience in such a way that the story is no longer the original story Mm -hmm. and that that, I've seen that happen with you know while talking with friends um, and I go that's not quite right and they didn't mean they weren't trying to mean something bad by it it was just by trying to say it in a particular way to a particular person it changed too much right it's like they tried to appease as opposed to uh make it accessible would Mm be the best way then of course there's the you know anything ranging from prosperity gospel or you know any of the other heresies
0: and I mean I don't know if this is still the case uh, but you know when I was growing up there were there there were two or three Christian bookstores um that that were that, that were in the the town where I grew up and when you go in there you could find anything and everything that you were looking for but especially this 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 idea of trying to accommodate the gospel to to the culture trying to to make it accessible um but the, the trouble is, of course, that it sort of became a, it became a blend of, of commercialism alongside pro, proclaiming the gospel. And so what usually ended up happening was they just created really garbage stuff uh, and then sort of passed it off. They're like, well, it's okay that it's crappy because gospel um, which is the opposite, really, of what you would want, right? That, I mean, that's the opposite of what you get in Paul. Paul Paul doesn't Paul doesn't give them a crappy sermon. Uh, and, but he's like, but it's okay because I quoted one of their one, one of their rock bands. It was okay. Uh, it, it's okay that it was garbage because I quoted from one of their dudes. Uh, he doesn't say that at all. He gives a fantastic sermon that that's that, that's winsome. That that is is very clever. Uh, that's very engaging for the people who were there. It's you know the 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 story in Acts 17 is talks about the you know this back and forth debate that, it, that that was going on. It stirred all kinds of conversation up among the people who were there. Now did all of them follow after him? No there was only a few of them that followed after him but still what what he did was engage them in a way that they in in a way that they understood. Uh, and and that, that was that, that that was the point. But he did it in a way that was uh, that that was well done which was you know the opposite of all of the uh you know the contemporary christian bands that that i had cd's of uh you know all of the the various what whatever the pop culture we in in my church we we had a a, a chart uh up in our in our youth room and on this chart you could go and you could look at it and you say which band do you like to listen to and then they would give you some christian options so you didn't have to listen to that that other garbage crap they're like oh you like corn well what you should actually listen to is you know and they would list two or three christian bands that you know it was you know they they were almost never good uh, and, and that was just, uh, you know, it, it was just sort of that dumbing down of, of, of the, it was the, the least common denominator. Like what we said the word Jesus on the album. So you have to buy our stuff now. Uh, you know, and, and the same thing was true with comic books and wristbands and t-shirts and all of that. Um, what I appreciate here is that you don't find that in Paul, what Paul does when he uh, when, when he speaks to people at their own level, is that he does it in a way that gives value to their culture and their experience. He doesn't do it in a way that, is, uh, that, that minimizes them. He doesn't do that in a way that, that ostracizes them or others them. He does it in a way where he says that God is at work in you and through you and among you right now. He's telling this story. Let me tell you about where this story reaches its zenith. Let me tell you about the person, Jesus. And then he, he uses that as the jumping off point. But he does that in a way that gives value to the people who are listening, which, let's be honest, in, in, a, in, in a Roman culture in the first century, people didn't have a lot of value. There, there maybe were a few people listening to Paul whose lives had value, but most of the people didn't. And so to have somebody show up who says to them, you are important you are worthwhile you are somebody that god is inviting into his story god wants to tell his story in you and there's something about that that, that even now captures our imagination this this idea that i matter uh that, that i matter to god uh that god is is wants to be involved in the things that i'm doing that god is inviting me uh, into doing the things that God is doing. Other thoughts about contextualizing the gospel before we move on to the to the last section in the book here. Um. First of all, regarding your Christian music story,
1: what, <laughs> Hank, what Hank Hill says is. You're not making Jesus any better. You're just making music worse. <laughs> Amen.
3: Yes. <laughs> throw, and, out the, throw out the hymn book out of the church. We don't need hymn
2: books.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and our church, they're all stored in a closet somewhere.
2: Right? <laughs> so well, to talk with the I know too, but that's because the
0: bishop said we had to put him in a closet until we've he, he got her So, <laughs> so,
3: so Lee, if you went to a general church today, would you preach like Peter or would you preach like Paul? Say it again. Would you preach like Peter or preach like Paul? On the, if you went to, went to Asbury and talked to a class, lecture to class, you'd preach pe- like Peter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but If you went to most churches today, you'd probably preach like Paul. The Gentiles, because people... Mm-hmm problem with the church today to me people just don't know the Bible they they, they know the basic stuff a lot of them they know nothing about the Holy Spirit hardly and it it just I don't know and and I'm afraid a lot of churches are not teaching that
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and that's very different from the bottom of 141 uh, where it says Paul drew from the well of his one and only story
3: Mm, yeah
1: which they say is Israel's story, but I like better is just, you know, the gospel, which is Israel yep. story united with Jesus's story. Mm-hmm. I think that that, you know, Paul is happy to use other tools in order to tell his one and only story. But I think that the issue we run into is we have a bunch of stories that we want to tell and we want to loosely connect them to the gospel so that we believe mm-hmm. them worth telling mm-hmm. um, which is the opposite of what Peter or Paul do which is to you know absorb other things and other stories even but they don't just have one true only story which is convicting to me personally because I'm sure that I have more than just one story um uh, <laughs> <laughs> and probably none of them are exactly the same as the story of Peter and Paul. So,
0: <laughs> so he ends the book with this discussion of, of three core terms. So he says that the, the apostles invite people to respond. That when, Whenever the, the, the apostles proclaim the gospel, they invite a response from from the people who were there and he said that this response that they that they invite, both Peter and Paul uh, is is this response to believe and to repent and to be baptized. Uh, now obviously we have um, theological and uh, and denominational uh, and personal baggage that is sort of tied up in a lot of these ideas. What, what I wanted to draw our attention to here, is because, because this the, 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 the understanding of what belief is and what belief looks like, what, what it looks like for us to respond to the gospel, because that is so central, this is going to set the stage for not only more books by Scott McKnight, uh, but more books by other people who were influenced by this book from Scott McKnight. Um, this 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 idea of of helping us to understand that faith isn't about just believing a thing to be true but it's about responding to the gospel it's responding to an invitation to the gospel so this is what he says i'm on 144 here <clears throat> he says to believe means more than just mentally agreeing to some truth even if that truth, is that Jesus is Messiah and Lord over all. The entire sweep of the story of Israel and the story of Jesus ushers us into a world where God's people rely on and trust in God. And such a trusting relationship generates a life of obedience, holiness, And love. Our relationship with God is depicted by Hosea in the terms of a marriage. And just as a husband and wife are not only absent of infidelities, but also filled with fidelities, love, nurturing, and time spent with one another, so someone who has faith is faithful. Initial faith and discipleship, in other words, are two dimensions of the same response. They're not two distinct patches of cloth that have to be sewn together. So he talks about these three terms of believing and repenting and being baptized are the terms about how we enter into the gospel story. So he says that the one that stands at the top of that, the the sort of overarching one, is is this idea of believe, this idea of faith and that faith is ultimately about trust. Now, the, the the folks who have taken the the King Jesus gospel and gone on with it have pointed out that what faith means in a way that we culturally can understand, a way of contextualizing the gospel for us, is that faith is about allegiance. We give our allegiance over to King Jesus, that King Jesus is the only authority who holds our Allegiance. We, we, the, the, that gospel belief, faithfulness is about being, in, about giving our allegiance over to King Jesus, uh, instead of over to, to other powers, uh, either, either spiritual or corporeal. <clears throat> and that the response of that, 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 that trust looks like repentance. Now, again, repentance is, Uh, All of these are words that have so much baggage for us because we're like, oh, repentance is where I cry, right? I go up to the altar and I cry and I say, oh, I'm so sorry, God. And then then that's it. And, And of course, that's not what repentance looks like. And really repentance isn't just about repentance from sin. It's about repentance from a different way of life. It's about turning and walking mm-hmm. after a new kind of a story, the kind of story that God is telling about his creation. And then of course baptism is is the um, the the image, right? the icon of of what repentance looks like. If we are giving ourselves over, if we're entrusting ourselves to God, if we are turning after a new way of life, then the promise of that new way of life is, jesus christ and so we're baptized and we're given a new name we're christened we're given christ's identity and now we live in that new way of being human does
2: that Mm -hmm. make sense
3: yep
0: so thoughts about those those three ideas obviously he does not because that's not the point of this book this book's purpose is not to tell us what what that looks like there's there, there are more books that that both he and and others have have written that are going to do that but but just as with that as sort of the tail end what what did you think about this idea that the proclamation of the gospel in the first century in the first generation of the church always ended with an invitation to respond.
3: Mm. Uh,
0: he says that they summoned people to respond to the gospel. Yeah. I liked, at first I was a little resistant to the idea because
1: I've been too many places where the altar call is literally the worst possible proclamation of the gospel ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I was so I was resistant at first, but as as I read more about it and about exactly what, like, and thought and looked at how Peter and Paul are doing this call, it's very different. Yeah. And the uh, everybody clo- close your eyes and bow your head and raise your hand and now come forward and,
3: yep.
1: you know, all that rigmarole. I've been, been to that uh, youth rally. Yeah. And so, but it also, you know, it raises a question of, you know, these are occasional sermons that they're giving, which is different than our weekly mass with sermon kind of, Mm -hmm. and, you know, but in a way, what I was thinking about was, you know, some sermons that happen during the mass may you know, a, a call to action is appropriate, but in a way, the way our liturgy is formed creates that call in some ways on its own. Mm-hmm. And so probably what's more mm-hmm. important is that our event, which is a terrible word to use, you know, whether you call it mass, whether you call it worship, whether you call it praise and worship followed by something else that's all part of the stuff, whatever you call it, whatever that event is, that the purpose of that time should be to call people to belief and to baptism. Um, Because, you know, in my I think that it takes a while, you know, all of those things are kind of ongoing in many ways. You know, belief starts small and it grows a little bit Before it leads to repentance, before it grows some more and leads to baptism. But then even once baptism has occurred as an event, you're still growing in belief and growing in repentance. And there, you know, there's a reason that we remembered our baptism last week Mm -hmm. because we continue to grow in our baptism too. It gets confusing really quickly, I think, because there are those layers and that they grow on one another And, you know, because we're not preaching in the same environment that, you know, that Peter's in. Peter's in an environment where he's personally, if I was writing this book, I would have started with Acts chapter two and Peter's sermon. And I would have done two chapters just about that sermon. Mm -hmm. And then I would have been like, but Jesus preached the gospel too. And so did Paul. And I would, it would have been all about Peter did it. Mm -hmm. And then. Then go from there, but that's, you know, he, he saved it as the dénouement of the book. So whatever, that's, that's his poor choice, but, but, um, but, you know, I, I think that it's an important understanding, but it, there are some ways in that it changes within how things actually play out and what we do as Christians in our life.
0: Yeah, I like that summary too, because the because it, it places less um, less weight, I think, on the individual personality of the of, of the pastor. Um, the the sermon in, in that context is really just about explaining to the people who are there what is the gospel and what are we being invited into? What 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 kind of what what kind of way are we being called into? But the actual call, the actual repentance, the actual bidding happens when we are invited into confession, and then we're invited into communion, and then from there, we're invited into, uh, in, into the, the dismissal, which is, of course, where the mass gets its name, the sending out, that, we're, that, that, that what, we're, what, we're, what we're entering into is, this, is a larger story about what God is doing through his church and so the purpose of proclamation isn't just the pastor says words that are proclaimed. The, the, the act of gospeling isn't just something the pastor does during his, his 20 to 40 minutes on Sunday, but the, the act of gospeling is something that the entire church is being invited into. And the work of the pastor then is to, uh, is to, is to equip everyone who's there to gospel the gospel well as they are being sent out into the world any other thoughts this evening
3: i thought on page 146 right before it says the apostle promise that peter saw clear and unmistakable evidence of the gift of the holy spirit on these folks and said if 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 repentance and baptism draw the spirit down from heaven then we need nothing more
0: Mm -hmm. so at our next meeting what we'll do is we'll discuss chapter 10 um which sort of is a is a continuation of what we what we mentioned just briefly uh, just now that what, what does it look like for us to gospel the gospel today um, what does it look like for us to create a gospel culture not a not not a culture of the gospel but a culture that's shaped by the gospel that gospel's we'll we'll use we'll we'll use the same word over and over and we'll just we'll, we'll only use the word gospel as, as, the, as the subject, uh, predicate, and verb in all of our sentences for that entire hour in two weeks. It will be a very fruitful discussion, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment, and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you.
1: our Father is restored, hope with our Father is restored.